Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, the thesaurus, that has become like a Bible to Creative visualization that really set me free. I love actioning, very specific action verb. Understanding their backstory is vital in order to be able to. This is the actor's mind. What are we called? Welcome to the actor's, actor's mind podcast. Well, I like that. Do you want to say it this time? Yeah. Okay, I do. do it. Do I it. I didn't do realize it. I did until you asked. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to our final episode of season one, episode five on language. My name is Anne. I'm an associate professor of theater at the University of Denver. I teach acting, I teach directing, I teach movement, and I'm a professional actor, director, and producer. And my name is Katiri. I am an associate professor of psychology at the University of Denver, and I do research on emotion cognition interactions, uh, more specifically sometimes on emotion regulation, and I teach classes on the intersection between psychology and theater, uh, and I am a sometimes performer, but not in a while and definitely not professional. So uh, today we're going to be talking about, I guess people usually do pay me. Yeah, so. I disagree. You're professional. <laughs> I, I like to say semi-professional so people don't think that I have some sort of like racket going on. Um, okay. So today we're going to be talking about language um, from the acting side. And we're going to be talking about psycholinguistics from the psychology side. So psycholinguistics actually refers to a pretty large field of study. Um, it's not one um, specific concept like some of the other things that we've talked about. But it it in itself is an interdisciplinary field that looks at the intersection between psychology and language. So how is it that when we produce language, um, that that corresponds to our inner mental state, whether that's a thought or a feeling or the way that we perceive the world or categorize things, all of that. So the it, the bi-directional relationship between language and psychology. Great. And when we say that we're talking about the actor's relationship to language, we're making an assumption that the point, the value of an actor speaking the playwright's text is to express the inner experience of the character, the thoughts, the emotional, mental, philosophical, physical sensations of that character. Um, the actor's relationship to language includes clarifying what information or tools an actor can and should be able to take from the text. And then second, how these tools in practice, after you've done the analysis, in practice, in the speaking of the text, in the playing of the text, can play on an actor in imaginative and productive ways. So we want to just briefly contextualize the conversation. We are humbly aware that we are <laughs> blending two huge disciplines, each on their own constituting so much information, and in the case of actor language, thousands of years of experience. So we realize we are just touching the tip of the tip of the iceberg. Our other priority, of course, in this episode is to find the sparkiness between these two disciplines, how they connect in exciting ways and why it's worth tackling them at the same time. Absolutely. And we'll put some resources up on the website. There are other people who have looked at this. Um, I think the intersection of language and theater um, has sometimes fallen under um, a more of a traditional sort of like English literature type analysis. So you'll find like analysis of Shakespeare, for example, um, and of the language that's being used and even connections to psychology. There are lots of other people who have done that. So I'll make reference to that in the cases that I'm aware of it. Um, but just also on the psychology 
side, this is not a comprehensive <laughs> at all. This is just sort of like picking some choice nuggets that we think will be helpful to aspiring actors, psychology nerds, whoever else picks up this podcast. Yeah. So we actually tackled this episode in a very parallel way to the physicality episode. Um, and we even opened the physicality episode by saying, uh, everyone cares a bunch about what they're saying, but what we want to talk about today is, is the physicality and both physicality and language are modes of expression, right? They're ways of moving your muscles in order to get what is on the inside out. And so really similarly, we first want to talk about some of the technical pieces of producing um, vocal sounds even, as well as forming those sounds into intelligible words. Um, and Anne is the resident expert on the technical training that is involved in that. And then we're going to talk a little bit more about the expressive piece. So there are sort of two subparts uh, to part two, uh, which is how the language we use might display to others what's going on internally. One is in a more stable way, two is in a more state way, in a, in a more... Um, liminal way. And then step three is the fun part where we're going to talk a little bit about outside in. So we know that language flows from us when we are feeling and thinking certain things, but how could the act of producing language actually cycle back and potentially impact what we are thinking and feeling if it does? It totally does. <laughs> All right. So step one, I'm going to call the pre-language Step. So an actor wants to become an available conduit or vessel or container for speaking the language and for making sound. And in actor training, we might call this the the voice part of the training, not the not not necessarily the speech. Um, or text training, the vocal production training. So even before we layer in character and we layer in the language, just like with physicality, you want to train your musical instrument, your body, uh, to breathe. Um, to resonate and to articulate. The language I use is Kristen Linklater's language. She is one of many uh, successful, highly regarded voice uh, teachers. There are others. There's Catherine Fitzmorris. There's um, Patsy Rodenberg, Edith Skinner, Arthur Lessac, Cicely Berry, and I'm sure I'm leaving a bunch out. But briefly, uh, you take a breath in. So there's, there's breath training. That is sometimes attached to language, but in this case, we're just going to take the breath in as we, as we exhale it, as it comes out, it's going to oscillate or move the vocal folds in your throat. And that creates a touch of sound, just a little, huh? Then the resonators in your body, just like a musical instrument, your chest resonator, your throat resonator, uh, your mouth resonator, the hard palate, the teeth, the nasal resonator, <laughs> um, the sinuses, are amplifying the vibration. So sound is vibration. It's physical. <laughs> it's tangible in that way, sort of. And the resonators amplify and make louder the sound. Then that's just sound. That's just sloppy, messy, <laughs> like uh, vowels. Ooh, I right? wanted to, I, the whole time. I was like, uh, I want to make a sound. Do it. And so, oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> right. So um, some of the strongest voices are blending those resonators. So I'm just going to give a quick, quick example of, so I'm going to try and separate out the resonators, right? So you have like the chest resonator. Um, this is, 
this is my hard palate. I'm hitting the vibration up onto my hard palate, which is right in the middle of my range. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the most annoying, of course, is the nasal <laughs> resonator. And, you know, if you were to meet someone like this, it'd be really annoying. However, the nasal resonance is a really powerful, mm-hmm. bright, forward, confident sound that right now I'm using. I'm just blending it with a bunch of different mm-hmm. sounds. And you can go higher, too, like the top of your head. So that's the resonators. And then the articulators are the lips, the teeth, the tongue, the hard palate, and that shapes these kind of messy sounds into words. They add the consonants. So that's voice training. And we haven't even really added language, right? (laughs) Or meaning behind this. What I want to say though, is there's still information. So if I, you can express the emotional or physical state of someone through those sounds, right? right? So the happy sound and the angry sound and the in pain sound can come out just with that before you even add language. That's our step one. Yeah. And sounds are always the building blocks of language. When um, most kids learn language, the way they learn it is by learning sounds and the letters associated with sounds and then being able to sort of build on that. So, and uh, it makes sense that you would learn to produce language in the same way that we learn to recognize and, and, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Receive language, I suppose. Yeah, and I yes to that. And I'm thinking in terms of kids, both kids and animals, but I have two children and one dog. <laughs> um, I have two the, dogs and one child. Oh, my gosh. It's Three like, creatures. It's like we're puzzle pieces. <laughs> they go together. <laughs> um, that uh, when I listen to a, a dog, my dog, of course, is making sounds that I understand, but there's no language per se. Mm-hmm. My children, I'm realizing, are really, they're better than I am at the sort of pre, pre-language sounds expressing how they feel. So you can hear frustration in their voice even without the, the meaning of the word attached mm-hmm. to it, right? And they love their vowels. So they sometimes elongate a word, right? No becomes no So yeah. they add sound to it. They add that messy, right, non-consonant sound, which really super clearly expresses how they feel. The final thing I want to say is Kristen Linklater... Hi, Kristen. You're great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she talks about training the natural voice over the familiar voice. So on a daily mm-hmm. basis, we all have habituated to use a familiar voice, which tends to be more contained, more constrained, less dynamic than our natural voices. So our bodies are built to have extremely dynamic sound when you're talking about pitch and resonances and volume and articulation. But we tend to not exercise the extremes. Sure. Unless you're trained to be able to do that. Again, a parallel to the physicality is that one of the things that you first do when you're being trained, as at least that first happened to me when I was being trained as an actor, is exploring the extremes of your physicality, not even in character, but literally a warm-up might be make yourself fill up as much space as possible, you know, out into an X, and then crumple yourself up into the smallest space possible, which you don't do on most days, right? You don't usually like spread yourself out to like take up all the space as possible in the room. I'm like perching on a stool. You look awesome. Great. And I just, I have nothing scientifically to add on all of this because Anne did a great job of describing how sound gets produced in our bodies other than to just remind you that um, vibrating our vocal cords and directing them around all of these resonators and articulators is one of those things that I talked about as one of the only outputs of our brain, right? Our brain only knows how to move muscles and a really important one, especially for humans at this moment in evolutionary time is the ability to 
make all of these sounds, produce these different words, not even to, the the receptive piece to, to add meaning to words and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and it's interesting because in some ways as an audience, as a frequent audience member, uh, actors who you can't understand might be brilliant emotionally and might have so much presence that you can't take your eyes off of them. And yet it's the most frustrating experience in the world to not be able to hear the words of the playwright. And many years ago, I want to say 10 years ago ish, um, I got to go to, um, a conversation with the, the then artistic director of American conservatory theater and Tom Stoppard. And she asked him, you know, what qualities are you looking for in an actor? And he thought for a second and then said, clarity of utterance. in a really British way that was super delightful. And it's so interesting because in for most performers, it, that's not the most exciting thing to train clarity of utterance, right? You think about the emotion and the substitution and how, you know, m- m- much you attract people's eyes and how much people want to work with you. And like you fantasize, you don't really fl- fantasize about Tom Stoppard being like, I can just understand every single word you say, but yeah. like, that's what he's searching for. <laughs> Yeah, it's in a performer here on the campus. One of our our main stage space is this beautiful octagonal space called the Byron Theater, and has a really high ceiling. And even the students with the Mm, most three-dimensional richest voices struggle to fill that space mm. and my colleague Rick Barber comes in when he watches a run through he's like it's really not sexy work but you need <laughs> to articulate those consonants you need yeah. to run the energy through to the end of the sentence and it's 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 crucial for the yeah. od- in order for the audience to understand and we're, we our past two examples were articulation right how the consonants are made it's also how the vowels are made. It's also, it's the resonators and it's also how much breath you have. So it's, it's those, all three of those parts are crucial. Yeah. Awesome. So the next step, uh, now that you have those tools at your disposal, the next step is to use them to express certain things, right? To get some of your inside mental states onto the outside. Um, and the first way that that can sometimes happen, um, is, through, again, more sort of stable characteristics. So there are some vocal qualities that are going to be, I'm going to say, relatively stable throughout a play, right? Probably throughout the course of a play, your character's regional dialect or accent won't change all that much. And that informs how you say like every single word. Um, So that might be something that is a stable characteristic. There might be other influences on that character's speech patterns. Um, and this is also where some of the overlap between a- actor and character come in where, um, you know, my voice has a certain quality to it. I can move it around a little bit. <laughs> um, but, you know, if there is a character that uh, the a director has a vision for, or maybe the playwright is even written in that has like a super gravelly, like low, sexy voice, like I'm probably, A, I'm probably not going to get that role. And if I do, like there's a floor to how far I can go to achieve that. Um, so there, there are some, there are some relatively stable characteristics and choices you can make in order to, uh, in order to communicate some of the the choices that you've made about aspects of the character that, that stay mostly the same. Sure. And one way of, of packaging some of these tools, uh, in a simple bundle is the vocal viewpoints. Um, these are words, tempo, duration, uh, volume, which they call dynamic, pitch, timbre, which is the quality of the sound, shape, which I'll come back to, gesture, uh, even repetition, that you can you can drop these 
into some of your text and just play with tempo, play with the extremes of tempo and see maybe what feels correct for that particular character or duration, how long it takes them to say a particular word. Um, and that's changeable. How loud is this character, right? Of course, depending on the scale of the space that you're performing in, you have to have a certain volume to be audible, but is it a quiet character? Is it a loud character? Um, pitch, uh, which ties into resonators. What reson are you? Are you focused on a, a chest? Is this a, a chest resonating kind of person or a nasal person? <laughs> um, this ties into timbre. Again, the quality. Is it a sandpapery kind of rough sound or is it very smooth? Um, shape, I think, is fascinating. Is it a linear? Do they speak in a sort of linear, angular way? or maybe a round curvy way, another perhaps more helpful way of thinking, do they favor vowels over consonants? So vowels tend to express the emotional experience of the character and consonants tend to express uh, the intellectual experience, the thoughts of the character. And I think this is such a fascinating distinction. I haven't found any studies of this. There oh, might be. Let's do it. But yeah, I mean, new study idea to actually, and you could look at it there are a few different ways that you could potentially yeah. look at that. And I can do some more research. If anyone listening knows of these studies, please feel Tell free us, to enlighten send us. Send us yeah. an email. Um, two things I want to say about vowels versus consonants. I have a wonderful student actor uh, who's about to graduate and he often favors the vowels. Just mm -hmm. when he's speaking, he's hanging out more in the vowel sounds and the consonants. There have been one or two moments where I've, I've, he's playing a role where I think, oh gosh, we need to hear the consonants a little bit more and he can make that adjustment. Another thing is the O in Shakespeare. <laughs> um, you, you'll see it in, in, I mean, everyone says it, right? There's just, it's just written as an O. And that can be taken, Sylvia Gregory, local casting director, help me understand this. You don't just have to say an O, it's some vowel. It could be an mm. ah or an ah, uh, ah, right? Oh, Ooh, yeah. It, it is some emotional express. It's an expression that is um, telling the audience what you feel about that particular moment in time. Yeah. And I think there are other examples of not necessarily um, ways of speaking words that have these qualities that inform character too. So my husband, who is an actor, um, who's quite good, one of his sort of tricks for finding character quickly and expressing it quickly, um, is to figure out how that character laughs. Um, and sometimes that comes out on stage where he'll use that character laugh, but even finding that is an important tool for figuring out something about that character. Um, and, um, I, it, it, it works really beautifully um, on stage when he's able to work it into a line. It, it, he ends, it ends up sounding authentic. And, and as someone who knows him well, which sometimes it's hard to then watch someone perform and see the character, it's one of the things that I instantly go, oh, okay, he's this. I, I know way more about this character and how he's different from David because he didn't laugh like David. Right. He laughed like this person. There are a lot of tools that an actor can impose or use to unpack and understanding understand the information language. What words is this character choosing to speak to the people um, th that are on stage with him or her? Uh, so for example, I'm working on Queen Margaret in Richard III, and she uses uh, really vivid, sometimes violent, and aggressive language throughout the whole play, beginning of the play and end of the play. Now, why does she do this? Well, this is what she feels. <laughs> she feels 
angry. She feels, she's speaking to her enemies most of the time. And so, and she's also the kind of broad who doesn't give a shit what people think about her. (laughs) And she's pissed off. She's lived, you know, her whole life and she's out of power and she wants back in. So, um, she doesn't care if she's going to offend anybody. And even more specific is she uses really, really ugly, um, hurtful, words to speak about Richard, right? Mm -hmm. She calls him um, elvish-marked, abortive, rooting hog. She calls him a dog. She calls him a bottled spider. um, Three different animals. Slander of thy mother's heavy womb, loathed issue of thy father's loins, rag of honor, detested. And that's just half of it. I mean, she goes on and on about how horrific this guy Mm -hmm. is. Now, there's a couple reasons she does this. She hates him. Mm -hmm. She wants him to feel shitty. Now, I don't know if he does. I have no control over that. And she also wants to impact, she wants to direct these words to the other people who she wants, she wants them to turn their back on him too. So there's action, there's objective behind that, right? Um, And that is, that's actually a constant for her. It's a stable characteristic for her throughout. Sure. So in some ways you're saying that that when you analyze some of the word choices, if you can recognize some of these patterns, that might inform not only character um, in terms of, you said something like she's an angry person, which even though anger is often a state, you were meaning that in a more of a trait sense, or at least during yeah. the duration of the play, yeah. that that's a constant, but also into objective that there's, there's, there might be a goal hidden in there that you can extract from the language. That's really cool. Totally. Um, can you talk a little bit about, so it's really common in auditions for people to ask for contrasting monologues. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how, and that's a trick, right? To, to, to switch between two different characters. It'd be pretty poor audition choice. If you're like, my two contrasting monologues are from the same character in the same play. Um, they'd be like, get out. You only get half your time. (laughs) (laughs) You're breaking the rules. Don't waste our time. Um, like, can you talk about how you shift, how you might use language to shift quickly between like those two different um, monologues? Yes. So I had the privilege of working with Sylvia Gregory, who's a local uh, casting director, casting agent, and overall a delightful teacher person. and a, just a fabulous person. I worked with her to prep for what are called the Denver Center uh, general auditions, where you just audition. You bring in two contrasting monologues, one classical with some heightened language, some poetry. So I did Queen Margaret because I'm working on her, and one contemporary. So I chose. Um, there are tons of options. I chose Janice from Italian American Reconciliation by John Patrick Shanley. And Sylvia was really helpful in multiple ways, especially making every line specific. But in terms of the contrast is we really pushed the contrast. Um, In terms of how I was using the language, it was very different. And I'm actually, my more recent experience is more with Shakespeare than with contemporary. So I know how to speak both, but my comfort zone is actually the heightened stuff. So with Shakespeare... And in this case, it's written in poetry. So you're look, the poetry tells you where the weak and strong beats mm-hmm. are. And that's important because it's helping you understand the stress, the strong beats are where the sense is, where the meaning is. Mm-hmm. That idea, and with Shakespeare, it's very specific. It's iambic pentameter, which means weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong, weak, strong. It's five IMs. Even though 
uh, Janice is not written in iambic pentameter, I'm still looking for the operative or the, mm-hmm. the words that carry the sense. With Shakespeare, you can stress up to five syllables, sometimes <laughs> six, sometimes even more if it's in monosyllables. Yeah. With, I was then bringing that idea, because that's what I'm comfortable with, into Janice, and I was stressing multiple words throughout the sentences, mm. and Sylvia said, you, you have to pick one word, mm. which is very difficult for me. <laughs> it is. Um, but that's the way we speak, is, is right. uh, over the course of a sentence, we probably stress one yeah. or maybe two words or syllables. Yeah, and especially when you trust to the playwright, I'm sure you're like, but all of these words are here for a reason, right. you know, so you really... And I think that that's... In my limited experience, I think that's something that's, um, as people learn about operatives, I think sometimes they tend to, they start to overdo it. They like, you know what I mean? They're like, and there are 10 words in this sentence and eight of them are operatives, which in some sense, what they're recognizing is that every single word is important, right? So like, there's that saying that once you learn about language, like you don't, it's, it becomes a lot more difficult to go up on a line or to swap out a word in a line yeah. because the way that you've encoded the line, like memory-wise, is very specific to the ex- exact exact words that are used, right? So you often don't find yourself... I mean, in Shakespeare, you often don't find yourself swapping in a synonym for a word because it wouldn't scan right. Right, right. You know, but even if you're doing your job as an actor, right, and you've created the right you know visualizations and, you, and you're in the scene and all of that, like you just would rarely even swap out, you know, smaller words for one another because they're all connected in a way that yes. is is related to each other and it becomes a whole rather than a string of individual. Yes, and we'll talk more about that yeah. in step three yeah. too in terms of what sort of juicy imaginative things the yeah. language gives you when you speak it. Um, there are a few instances where one should stress every syllable. It happens in Shakespeare, probably occasionally happens in more contemporary. Mm -hmm, So here's mm -hmm. a Margaret example, excuse me, but she says, earth gapes, hell burns, fiends roar, saints pray to have him suddenly conveyed from hence. But those, those eight, is that eight syllables? I think. Um, They're all, they're monosyllabic words and they are all stressed because she is, because of the state that she's in at that point, it's extremely heightened and she is driving her point home to the women who are listening to her. So that's an example um, of that. I want to say one more thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a Heath Ledger story. I thought he said something beautiful about his role in Brokeback Mountain. And this ties into language being a physical act. So um, another way uh, into figuring out the stable um, quality of how your character speaks might be what they're doing with their mouth or with the articulators um, to, to speak. So he was he was talking about his role. I forget the character's name in Brokeback Mountain, and this is a closeted gay man who's 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 has um, you know aspects of his life are are secretive, and he figured out that if he tightened his jaw. I think this he was talking about this on Letterman, some late night show. If he tightened his jaw, so he's kind of clamping the upper jaw and the lower jaw, and he maybe closed his lips and he clenched his teeth, he found the voice came out. And so that was a, for most of the movie, perhaps all of the movie, that was a, a, a stable characteristic mm-hmm. and he found it physically. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there are even more examples of this. I just want to um, to sort of transition into the second part of this. 
you were talking a little bit about, um, like the vocal viewpoints and pitch, for example, being one of them. Um, and what's interesting is that pitch actually has a very specific relationship to physicality, right? So larger animals make deeper sounds and smaller animals make um, higher sounds. This is one of the reasons um, why men and women have different um, average. You know, obviously you, you find overlap um, in the distributions, uh, but men on average um, have deeper sounding voices than women. Men on average are larger than women. And this is true not just in humans, but in the animal kingdom as well. And one of the things, uh, one of the purposes of some of the vocalizations within the animal kingdom is actually to convey your size to. Uh, another creature. So especially if you are hunting a creature, you might want to show off that you're a lot bigger than they are, right? Or if you are being hunted, you might not want to display how sort of small you are. Um, and what's interesting is that the relationship between size and pitch is sort of known in the animal kingdom. And what's interesting is that even though this is uh, your size is a stable thing, you as a human and animals do this as well, can choose to produce different pitch sounds dependent on your state and what you want to communicate. Yes. So uh, if I am being hunted and I'm a mouse, I might lower the pitch of my vocalizations to try to sound bigger to whatever it is that's being, that's hunting me. Um, and there've been some, there's some evidence for this in humans as well. There's, um, a fascinating line of work that comes out of the lab of Dr. Paul Needenthal. Um, and the work that I'm particularly thinking of was done, um, by Dr. Adrian Wood. And she's done some work, um, that, uh, indicates that there are three main functions of producing a laugh since I was talking mm. about laughs earlier. Um, one of them is to express amusements, um, mm -hmm. which we, is what we all commonly think of at the comedy club, someone says something funny. Um, <laughs> one is to express affiliation. So um, probably most of the ones on the podcast are. Um, <laughs> I, I, it's me saying, I love you, Anne, from over yeah. here. Um, and then the third one, which is a little bit more surprising to humans, but is very common in the animal world, is to express dominance over someone, right? To put someone in their place. So if you think of derisive laughter, right? Um, that tends to be booming, that tends mm. to be very loud. It tends to say, "I am larger than you are mm -hmm. in this moment," mm -hmm. um, and there are analogy there. There are analogous um, shifts in in the the um, acoustic properties of laughter in humans and animals to express those three different things. It also interacts with gender. Um, so, volume, for example, um, the increasingly loud a woman's laugh get gets, the more people assume she's trying to express dominance with a loud laugh. But when men express increasingly loud laughters, people assume that they're more amused. Oh, wow. <laughs> so there's like some, almost all of them, all, there's almost, almost all of these different properties interact with gender yeah. in fascinating ways. So, and it's fun to kind of, again, through the lens of vocal viewpoints, just to sort of pull out these, these vocal or language attributes and to see them individually or to put them together. I was just thinking about volume and pitch that yeah. one way for a character to express stat, you know, higher status or dominance would be to get louder. But of course that isn't always how a character plays. And then I nope. thought another way, and I do this as a mom is I get quiet, but I get low. <laughs> the sound comes not just from my chest, but my belly, which creates dominance. Mm. And I think there's something primal there like it's down like I really mean it because it's coming from the center of my body it's not coming from my head right and pitches when you're doing this voice training these pitches are attached to different parts of your body right yeah. so a lower pitch of course is is more in your torso and your chest and the upper stuff is more mouth nose mm. forehead you know up here and I think I, I, it makes sense to me that there's a little more power yeah. with the sound coming out of the middle of your body yeah 
That's fascinating. So, I mean, and that really takes us into this transition between these stable characteristics and these more trait-like, um, you know, so what are you trying to convey with this line? What are you trying to convey in this scene? What do you want in this scene? And, you know, if you think about the language that characters are using as being a readout of their internal state, a lot of times that's really clear, you know, a lot of plays characters say what they're feeling. I'm really angry. Right. You know, that's super easy. Um, uh, most of the time they don't, or if they do, that maybe that's not the whole story, but there are other clues I- inherent in the language. And it's interesting. There's a colleague of mine who I absolutely adore, and I'm sure we'll talk more about his work. His name is Adam Anderson. He, um, he does some work actually more on facial expression of emotion, but a lot of times when he gives talks, he starts off talking about symbolic systems of communication and language is his counterpoint to facial expression. And he says in language, there's an arbitrary relationship between form and meaning, right? That the word orange doesn't inherently mean either a circular fruit that is citrusy nor Uh, the blend of red and yellow, but that we've all learned that orange has a meaning, that it has those two meanings, that this is how it's spelled, that this is how you, it sounds when someone says it. And we've learned over time that those two things go together. So the meaning in the word orange isn't inherent in the physical properties of the written word or the spoken word, but, um, but rather with our association and gathering meaning and, and socialization over time. And every time he gives this talk, it's not the central piece of his talk at all, but every time he gives this talk, I always go up to him afterwards and I'm like, great talk, Adam, because I love all his stuff. And I'm like, (laughs) but I got to argue with you on that language thing because a lot of words do have a relationship between the form and the meaning. So the most extreme example of this is onomatopoeia. So words that for whom the sound of the word and the meaning of the word are identical, like boom, boom, or ping, or... You have some favorites? Yeah, snap. Yes, <laughs> snap. there are those obvious ones that are like in, in a, like, holy smokes, Batman. They're in like Batman and Robin comic books, like the ones you've mentioned. Yes. And then uh, there are many others that we might not traditionally call onomatopoeic, but carry the inherent meaning of the word inside of them. So ocean sounds like, if you slow it down, ocean. <laughs> begins to sound like a wave, maybe crashing. Sure. Um, when Kateri spoke, Tom Stopper, the clarity of utterance. Clarity. There are a lot of consonants it's in there. It's real hard to say clarity. Clarity not clearly. of utterance, right? So there's, it's both clarity is asking you to be clear. It has a lot of really specific consonants and utterance has that really difficult yeah. double T, right? You want to say utterance, utterance. Yeah. So attached, clarity is inside. You have to speak clarity clearly. You have to utter utterance clearly. Right. Um, and there's a lot of other ones where... Uh, interesting or circumnavigate, right? Circumnavigate has a lot of angles and consonants to it. And it feels you can almost picture yourself on the ship circumnavigating the island. Um, But uh, love has this really beautiful O in it, right? Um, What else? I'm trying to think of things that are are sort of softer. Sure. I mean, Um, I think the word pretty pretty is a a pretty sound. Is a pretty word. Uh, There's something... um, uh, concise and uh simple i yeah. think in in both the sound and the meaning yeah i think that poets and actors probably see this ever there's probably not and especially i think as you get more experience in life 
it's hard to even tell, like you might be like the word table is just inherently tabular right? <laughs> when maybe, maybe that's a stretch, you know, and not everybody listening might agree with us about these particular words. Right. Um, you know, but the words soft and hard, for example, mm-hmm. have those qualities yeah. that convey their meaning. And certainly you would think as language evolves, that it would be easier to attach meanings to words that share acoustic um, properties and maybe even like I know some people who are testing hypotheses that the written word even has visual properties that go along with the meaning so that dangerous words might have more angles in the letters in them like might have more V's and um, W's for example than like O's and things like that so I think that's fascinating yeah. and I I think an actor wants to beware of it remaining a visual, but that idea taking it orally. So, so, so the idea of a dangerous angles being in the sound of it is extremely valuable. Totally. We we started a little bit complex, which is this sort of uh, form meaning mapping within the word. There's something even more basic than that, um, which is a little bit more along the lines of the laughter, which is um, the prosody, the characteristics um, of the sentence uh, that, that uh, flow above and through the words, right? So the overall all um, emphasis pattern of a sentence or, mm. or several lines. Um, and there is a lot of work that people can identify emotions in prosody, even when you remove the words from it. The fact that humans can pick up on prosody really easily is really um, easily demonstrated if you ever have someone mismatch the uh, content of what they're saying from the prosody. So I don't even remember why this was a phone commercial. I remember it was a phone commercial from like a decade ago where there are a bunch of family interactions. And so there's like a teenage girl who was like, mom, I can't believe you packed my lunch for me today. That was so amazing of you. But she had this very angry tone and it was like always a workout for my brain because it you don't usually hear people expressing gratitude with the same prosody yeah. that they usually express anger or frustration. So um, th- these uh, prosody gets picked up on really, really um, easily um, by different people um, and can change, uh, can and does change with emotional state. I love that. Um, I have a few other tools I want to mention. Punctuation is really important. Um, so does the sentence end with a period, uh, an exclamation point, or is there a dash, which implies, or a slash, yeah, dash, which implies they're being interrupted or they interrupt themselves? Is there a dot, 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 an ellipses, um, which you know tends to imply that the thought sort of trickles off? Um, there's semicolons or colons. All of these have different meaning. You want to pay attention because that affects... Um, the character's relationship to the language, to the thought. Um, connected to that maybe is also uh, silence right, in between yeah. words and what's going on in that silence or that beat or that pause. There's a couple examples with with punctuation. A few years ago with my colleague Greg Unger, I worked on two Samuel Beckett one acts. And one is this amazing, strange play called Not I. And it's just a mouth. And it really in a way, doesn't have a linear narrative. Um, and the reason it's called Not I is she really barely, the character barely has any sort of sense of uh, self-identity. Mm-hmm. So it's it probably the most difficult text that I've ever worked on. Um, and it, it just had, it never even had full sentences, had a lot of repetition, and it had, um, you know, it was like out, out into this world, this world, tiny little thing before its time in a godforsaken what? Huh? Tiny little, and that's it's nine to twelve minutes of just that, wow. and the the punctuation between every single phrase is either I could look it up right now. It's either a dot 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 or a dash. So this woman is so discombobulated. Mm-hmm. 
so scattered, so fragmented that she doesn't, there's no periods. There is no end of thought. It is just, I have this, this partial thought. (gasps) I have this partial. (gasps) I have this partial. (gasps) I have this. I have that. I'm going to go back and rework Mm. that. And Greg had me once I was memorized, which was very hard. Uh, (laughs) He had me um, switch directions on every single phrase, which was exhausting. Mm. And that, of course, was not the final product because it was just a mouth. Um, But that's one extreme example of punctuation. Can you say a little bit more about repetition as it normally comes up in other texts, especially Shakespeare? Sometimes there's repetition. Um, Yeah, I have two examples. I have a a Queen Margaret example and I have a... um, I have an example from the other monologue I was working on. So with Queen Margaret the, in Act 4 of the play, her objective shifts from cursing out everybody <laughs> to to trying to get her former enemies, perhaps still enemies, these women of of the House of York, not the House of Lancaster, to realize that they're all on the same side, mm. that they all have lost um, the men they love and the children they love. And... Richard is to blame. King Richard is to blame. And she says, uh, if sorrow can admit society, tell over your griefs again by viewing mine. I had an Edward till a Richard killed him. I had a husband till a Richard killed him. Mm. Thou hadst an Edward till a Richard killed him. Thou hadst a Richard till a Richard killed him. She says it again. Then the Duchess of York Where's says, that Richard Damn! But she really, really, really means it. Which totally. is, do you realize how many totally. people? He's killed my people. He's killed your people. Then the Duchess is like, you killed my son, which is true. And then Margaret says, thou hadst a Clarence too, which was her son, and Richard killed him. So she is five, Dang. right? So she's driving home. Not only did he kill me, yeah. but he or my people, my husband, my son, he killed yours. Yeah. And so the repetition is just driving home the objective, which is wake up. This yeah. guy has got to die. Yeah. Um, another example, in which is less heightened but still important, is this other monologue, Janice, in Italian-American Reconciliation, where she says she's she's... She's talking about why she shot her ex-husband's dog. And it was so that he would actually look at her for real. Because he wasn't really seeing the real her. So he came home, he the, looked... The husband, right? The not husband. The dog. Not the dog. She doesn't care about the dog. <laughs> uh, you know, and there it was, his eyes, she says. And then she twice says, he saw me. He mm. saw me. And Sylvia's like, you got to see those differently of from course. each other. And so the first one is, he saw me. Right, he saw me, and then the second one is he saw me. Yeah. Right, he saw the real me. Yeah. So those are offset from each other. So repetition, yeah. you always have to say them differently from each other. Right. Well, and again, I think that this is we can talk in just a second about the language alone informing how people are feeling and what they're thinking. But that's one example of you can say the same thing, and at least on stage, you never mean the exact same thing twice. Even the fact of saying it once changes your relationship to it, and. Yeah. So um, in a good repetition, I mean, five times is a lot of repetition, but this comes up a lot in musical theater as well, mostly because especially early in musical theater, lyricists, uh, I was about to say lazy, but it was just a different time back then. Uh, They would just reuse the same lyrics, right? Um, And so... 
a good performer of those songs never just repeats, you know, and it's funny because even like sometimes the music you have in front of you will just say repeat back to this point. You never just go back, right? Like your character is in a different place the second or the third time you sing something uh, that sends you off to something else. I think there, I mean, a lot of this, a lot of this trust in language has to be a trust in a playwright. Yes. Right. You have to trust that the playwright has intention there. If if you get the sense that people are just throwing words on a page, you might not, um, tr- you know, trust the language to inform, you know, what you, what it is that you think and feel from it. And I think what's interesting about musical theater in particular is that lyricists have, um, lots of jobs. And I mean, lyricists are a lot more like poets. Um, it's a lot more like Shakespeare than it is like other sort of contemporary playwriting because you have to fit the words into a structure and there is a rhyme scheme. And so sometimes you might choose a word that rhymes, but maybe isn't exactly what the character is feeling. And so like some, so some songs are better than others, right? Like some songs, uh, and some lyricists, prioritize, you know, the emotion over the rhyme scheme. The people who I think do it best, my two best examples, I think that both Jason Robert Brown and Lin-Manuel Miranda both do an incredibly good job of fitting lyrics to the structure, but in a way that advances the thought in a, in a, in a naturalistic way. And the two sort of merge in a very sort of Shakespearean sense, uh, where they become inextricably related and they inform one another. And you just by singing through a good song written by either of them, you go on the correct emotional journey Mm. because again, with music, in addition to just things like meter, you also have, there are other musical elements that can make particular words like soar for, it tells you this, this note gets, get is high and gets held for six beats, yes. you know, and that is so informative yes, um, and fun and beautiful. I love that. There's one more t- tool I want to talk about and that's antithesis. And I just wanted to mention that some of these tools are in an amazing book and set of videos called Playing Shakespeare by John Barton. Um, he uses RSC actors originally from the 80s, and then there's a more updated video from around 2000 to um, show um, the audience sort of how to use these very specific tools. So one is antithesis. And what this means is is playing contrasting words off of each mm-hmm. other. And the most pure example of this is words that really are the opposite of each other, and you want the audience to hear them in relationship or in contrast to each other. So the best example is, again, it's Margaret. I'm learning her lines. Forgive me. Um, Compare dead happiness to living woe. You actually have two antitheses there. You have the adjectives, which are dead and living, and you have happiness and woe. So you want the audience to hear all four of those words and understand um, what she's saying, which is challenging. And then the other less pure, but very valuable, especially for contemporary uh, speaking is antithesis. The, The words don't have to be opposites, right? They can just be bouncing off of each other. Again, with Janice, like you, she says, like you pinch somebody to wake them up. Mm. That'd be a moment where I would want to hear both pinch and wake. Wake yeah. is sort of the more important one. Those aren't, those aren't contrast to each other, but, but you, you are playing those in relationship to each other. So the audience understands. Totally. Step three. So the really awesome thing about both physicality and language is that there's also this possibility for, and I'm sure Anne will argue that it just does happen. Um, although again, this can be contested in some, um, psychological circles 
um, some parts of it are contested. Other parts are not at all. Um, that there's also this outside in influence that the language you use shapes what you think, um, the degree to which this is true. Again, um, some really early, um, psycholinguists argued that the language we use to describe things, uh, shapes our very perception of the world. Um, not everyone completely agrees with that. Um, but these early arguments were couched, um, for example, in the argument that if there is a culture that has 25 names for shades of blue and another culture that only has three, that the culture with 25 names for the shades of blue should actually be better at not just describing blues, but actually discriminating between are these two blues different colors than the culture that only has three. Um, and there has been limited but not overwhelming um not not entirely unambiguous support for that sort of notion of that outside in. What is less controversial is that the language you use to describe uh, an event changes how people remember and uh, how perceive this. and remember events. So um, a lot of this has actually come up um, in the domain of more applied, like forensic psychology, um, that has led to recommendations against, for example, leading witnesses on the witness stand. So imagine that I'm a, a, a lawyer in a courtroom, um, or not even on a witness stand, even in an interview, but if I'm a lawyer in a courtroom and you were a witness to a car accident... And I say, so Anne, how fast was that gray, you know, Bronco going when it smashed into the Nissan? Smashed? Super fast. <laughs> so fast it smashed into the car. <laughs> you know, whereas if I say, you know, just to, to uh, use some antithesis here, how fast was the gray Bronco going when it tapped the Nissan? Oh yeah, it just tapped. It wasn't, it just wasn't that fast. It was just tapping. It was just like a little brush. So just like it, poke. It was like, kind of mm. slow. You know, so if you use more... Uh, evocative words to describe uh, a situation, people, the answer to that question changes. So in an experimental setting, like there's a certain number of miles per hour more that people say on average when you ask the question with smashed versus tapped, but even more importantly, how that gets encoded. Cause we talked about how every time you reopen a memory, it gets resaved again. Mm. So that then alters how you remember it the next time and the next time. So then if even uh, when I'm, we are being interviewed, I don't lead you with the word smashed or the word tapped. You have this memory that a smash occurred. Right, because I, that's how I opened up. Oh, I love this. That so, memory with so you. over the course of a rehearsal or performance, I'm enriching my relationship to these words. So, totally. so my way of understanding our our step three is that as I speak out loud, as I'm learning my lines, as I'm working on them in rehearsal, and as I sort of add up the number of performances I'm doing for audiences, I am dropping into those words in a more intimate, yes. um, successful, specific, particular way. Yes. And, and yeah. just like in episodic memory, yeah. we have all these hooks into yes. the things that have happened to us. Yeah. We have similar relationships, um, in semantic memory, I talked about how semantic memory was the sort of counterpoint to episodic memory, but we have these relationships between words and concepts, which a lot of people refer to as our semantic network or our semantic um, web. And so, you know, you can also enrich your understanding of a, a particular word by um, opening up its relationship to other words. Right. So like that's one you can you can enrich a word by coloring with your own personal experience. Like when have things smashed you? But you could also just go on a little journey of like smash and crush and smush and like and keep kind of free associating the other things that are like that. Um, and what's awesome about antithesis is actually the opposites or the contrasts of our words are held close in our semantic um, relationship to like the meaning of 
the the meaning of death is closely related to living because yes. you know and and there are some that actually cannot exist without each other yeah. right you cannot define darkness without light and light without out darkness because one is the absence of the other Mm, right uh, yeah. similar this is uh, sort of flummox um, social psychologist for a long time a lot of people do studies of uh, yourself in relationship to other people you can't define other except from in relationship to yourself so there's this like definitional circle that you go and so those concepts are closely related even though they're technically contrasting or opposite i love that <laughs> so much sometimes uh when i'm learning shakespeare but Actually, even contemporary 21st century language, as I'm speaking out loud, there's certain lines that make perfect sense to me. I understand the sense of them, the thought mm -hmm. of them immediately, and why, the why behind them, why the character says that. And then... And then, of course, there are lines where I go, I have, no, I have no idea why she is saying this or even what she is saying. And with Shakespeare in particular, because it's so complex and some of the language, the words we don't know now, I it takes me several iterations of speaking it out mm. loud before I understand what I'm saying. Interesting. I think that you're not the only one for whom that's true. And there are some entire forms of theater that are predicated on this sort of outside notion. So yeah. the kind of work that Anna DeVere Smith does in interview-based theater, where you write a play based on actual words that have that real people have spoken to yeah. you, and then you perform the play by not just imitating them, not yeah. just speaking them, but you use speaking their words exactly as they came out. Like you, you audio record it wow. and you try to reproduce the acoustic properties of it. And that informs your performance as an actor and yeah. dropping into that character. And you use the language and the prosody and all of the things that we've talked about to communicate the heart of what this person yeah. is thinking. And Wouldn't feeling. it be fun to get one of those SNL actors on the pod <laughs> who play, right? Was it Kate McKinnon? Is that her name? She's wonderful. To do the impression. To do the Hillary Clinton or the Donald Trump and to just kind of talk to them about yeah. both their into it. Like what physical and vocal characteristics are they choosing to play? Yeah. And then when they're speaking, Tina Fey, right? Sarah Palin, when they're speaking that character, how that is kind of informing yes. how they play it, right? It's a feedback loop, which yeah. is which is beautiful. Well, and impressions, I think, are a little bit of a different beast than, than some of the interview-based stuff because there's inherent exaggeration for comedic effect. And so you might emphasize vocal, some t aspects of the vocal quality over others to A, make it instantly recognizable and B, you know, if if you're doing an impression of someone who you think is a buffoon, you enhance the buffoon-like sure. qualities, you yeah. know, rather than this more, not quite naturalistic, because there's still some heightened aspect to it, but this more authentic presentation of this person at that slice in time by trying to embody all of the complicated aspects rather than emphasizing some of the yeah, others. I agree, I agree with that. I wanted to bring up uh, an article that we posted on our website. It's uh, called Inside the Mind of a Lit uh, Inside the Mind of an Actor Literally. And it's from The Guardian. And it's about the British actor Fiona Shaw going into it as an MRI or CAT scan? MRI machine. She's going into the machine and then they, they, read, the her, they read her brain waves. And what they have her do 
is they she she recites aspects of T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, which she had performed, which is heightened language, it's poetry, and then that's alternated with her just speaking random numbers that are posted on a not posted that are projected on a like a screen, right? So she's speaking this fancy um, complex language, and then she's saying you know one twenty two twenty nine, and she isn't even coming up with the numbers; she's just yeah. told which ones to speak. And the the psychologist who did this study said, I really hope that I see like the the picture of the brain in each of these instances is very different. Yeah. And it was, it, it was, and what she saw, what the psychologist saw is, you know, when you're just saying numbers that are being given to you, it's really the parts of the brain that pop up are just kind of the motor, the, the things that tell you what your mouth and your lips and your tongue are doing. But when you're speaking poetry, when, when, when an actor is speaking language all these other parts pop up. And the psychologist was saying, it's like I'm giving you a really, really challenging analytical math problem where you take the figure, or, or not a math problem, just in a, an imagistic problem where you take an eight and you t- rotate it 90 degrees and you flip it on its side. So you're visually working through um, a picture. And I, I, I just want to drive home how exciting this is as an actor, that no matter what language you're speaking, and especially with something super heightened, uh, like poetry or Shakespeare, is, is speaking personally, is I, of course, I, have, I of course have the image of a picture of the thought that I'm speaking, but equally interesting to me is I have placed these words of the sentence or the thought in relationship to each other. Mm. So it goes back to this idea of antithesis so that the dead happiness and the living woe are visually in my imagination have some kind of geographic spatial Mm -hmm, relationship. mm -hmm. They might even have color. They might even be bolded. They might be on fire. They might... Uh, just all the different ways that I am working and structurally, imaginatively, productively using these words is exciting. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that particular example, um, well, not an exquisite experimental design, you know what I mean? It's it's one person and it's, uh, there are lots of things that are different between reading numbers and that. I think that what it, it, again, the provocativeness of that example is again that these that the words have relationship and are uh, and then then can have these sort of like spatial properties yeah. um, as you are seeing them, um, and I just wanted to point out one other thing that um, all of our examples before of onomatopoeia were sound onomatopoeia, but actually there are other qualities of words um, that relate to physical sensation or even like taste, right? So uh, so things that feel pokey. <gasps> Yeah, I just felt pokey. <laughs> you know Poked. what I mean? And there's, there have been some studies about the relationship, and this isn't just in English. I just was reading a study that d- was done on Japanese words um, that were describing taste, and that there were acoustic properties of the sounds that describe different tastes in Japanese um, that evoked those those different taste sensations in listeners to those those sounds. If you think about things being sweet or bitter, and that's even more cool because taste also happens in the mouth, which is what's producing the sounds. So there's another overlap there. Yes. And this ties back into actioning, which, you know, several of our guests, many of our guests have talked about being so valuable. If you are attaching a transitive verb to the words that you're playing, that verb has a visceral tactile energy that you're playing with those words. So if I am slashing, I mean, my words, when I'm speaking to Richard um, or his family members are like, I am poisoning, I am slashing, I am pummeling, I am punching, right? I am decimating. And even just speaking those words or thinking about them as I'm speaking other words is going to 
physically impact my mm-hmm. experience. Absolutely. Uh, the final thing I want to talk about is uh, one particular episode called Lost in Translation from the podcast Hidden Brain, which mm-hmm. is fascinating. Katira, do you want to start? Yeah. So this is an interview with um, a cognitive linguist. Um, she also identifies as uh, someone who studies a little bit of things like embodied cognition. Her name is Lyra Borodisky, and she talks a lot about this sort of outside-in path or how language um, or the way that we communicate can impact how we perceive the world. And she has spent um, some of her uh, time doing research with some remote cultures that don't have a lot of Western influence. She's talked about how spending time in cultures uh, that communicate differently from her has actually changed not just the way she uses language, but the way she actually constructs the world um, internally in in her mind. So I don't want to give away too much of the juicy pieces of the episode, but she also talks a little bit about how um, language is gendered and that influences our influence of the um, things that we're talking about, nouns and verbs and things like that. So check it out. Yeah. And I think uh, just to piggyback on what Katiri said is I was really excited by when you learn a different language, and you can argue that anytime you work with a new text or a new playwright or a new play, you're learning a different style of language, that that informs how you th- how you think about the world, how you work in relationship to the world, to the other people on stage, and even spatially sort of how you see the world and see yourself in the world. All right. Uh, I think that's all I have. Katiri, you good? I'm great. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Um, We're looking forward to interviewing Sabin Epstein up next. We are thrilled to welcome our guest Sabin Epstein to the podcast. He's been a resident director for the American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco the Georgia Shakespeare Festival in Atlanta, and A Noise Within in Los Angeles. He has been a guest director for the Alabama, Oregon, Santa Fe, and Southwest Shakespeare Festivals, the Juilliard School, the Guthrie Theater Actor Training Program, and the Denver Center Theater Company, among others. As an educator, he has been head of performance skills for the National Theater Conservatory at the Denver Center, head of acting for the Old Globe University of San Diego MFA Actor Training Program, conservatory director for the American Conservatory Theater Actor Training Program, and an adjunct instructor at the University of Southern California. And he is also co-author of Acting with Style, published by Allen and Bacon. Welcome, Sabin. Thanks for being Thanks. here. It's a pleasure after re- hearing that bio. I'm lucky I can still walk. <laughs> <laughs> we feel very lucky to have you. So I have the first question. Just to get us started, because okay. this is a conversation about language and style, what are the organizing ideas you begin with when teaching acting students a course on either language or style? The, well, bi- the big ideas. Okay, I, I never teach style. Okay. So that let's get that out okay. of the way. Um, I think that's a generic term that most people, when they hear that, they think of something that is stylized. Mm. And style, um, from my and John Harrop's point of view, is something that is internal and finds an external expression and is unique to every play. So it's not something that you just cookie cutter stamp onto a play and say, we're going to do it in the style of or a la, a la 
Commedia dell'arte, or I mean, th there are there are specific requirements for for each text and understanding the text, and from that, uh, in production and the way you approach language and context and subtext, the text guides you into what you're doing. So my approach um, culled through centuries of looking at all of this uh, is to re I like to reduce things down to very simple things in threes. So it's text, context, subtext. Mm. And it's the interaction between the three that leads, leads you into finding out how to live it how to experience it and live inside it. So the text is the basic guideline, um, and it's finite. It's words in a sequence and order, and they gain meaning through context. And the context is both the historical context of when the play was originally created for that audience to understand so it's got a social context, a religious context, a political context, an economic context, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as well as the context within the story that's being told, which is based on the relationships between the characters and their culture and society. And then the subtext, which is really that which informs and the subtext in the context, that which lies below the text that gives meaning to the words mm. as they're spoken to affect behavior in another character. Mm. Some people say that a certain playwright's writing doesn't have subtext like Shakespeare. Everything is in the text. Would you agree or disagree? Yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree that everything is in the text and everything you need to know is in the text. Yet, given our own predilection uh, in terms of what we consider to be good acting, um, which is huge and varied, mm -hmm. it, there's usually something that is based in psychological truth that creates the spin on the language that I would call subtext. Sure. I think that, you know, one of the biggest um, clues for that, that's not the right word that I'm, I'm looking for, but um, is that Shakespeare is meant to be spoken on the line. So I call it online acting because everything you need to know when to pause, what words to emphasize, when lines are shared, when when. All of that is happening is on the text. Our modern predilection, especially for people who are not trained in language, starting with Shakespeare, um, is that you tend to pause because you think it makes it sound naturalistic, right. uh, because it sounds more like the way we speak. Uh, and that might all be true in somebody's mind, but you're not... I mean, okay, I'll back up and say that from my point of view, I agree with Cicely Berry. Language is thought in action. So when you know what you're thinking, 
you know what you're doing. And the actor's job is to uncover and discover what the thought is and why you're thinking that and therefore what you're doing to somebody else. So you have, um, this is very old school, but you have to, I think, um, adhere to the way the text has been constructed by the writer in order to discover how the thought is grouped how the thought ah, is expressed sure. and the direction of where it's going in order to affect somebody. And then you have to have the technical skill to know how to move through the line to get to the end of the thought and yeah. let it have impact. So would it be fair, do you think, when you're talking about both the text and the subtext, that subtext... Um, it maybe has more volume than the text. It's sort of surrounding it and maybe, or it's three dimensional or there are other things. So there's a particular word that might be in the text, but that word has connotations, right? It has relationships to concepts and other words that we might know or feelings or that, and all of that might be part of the subtext and the, the text is still your window into the subtext as you were saying, yeah. but that you might have a much richer, deeper, fuller thought process that surrounds all of the, the, the text and you're communicating that through the text, but there, there, there's basically that there's more, uh, uh, that there's more there aside from just the words that you're saying. Uh, okay. So I, I'm thinking primarily at the moment about Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, and verse. Yeah. And at times going into prose, all of our contemporary writing is Prose. Yeah. Very rarely do we deal with verse. So, in our own, in, in, as we're communicating now, there may be a gazillion things going on in terms of what we're thinking, what we want to do, the kind of impression we want to make, the what I'm going to be doing afterwards <laughs> about our dogs, about our children, <laughs> about this or that, and all of that helps shape the choice of word. Mm. Now, the more we history we have with each other, the more the choice of word is going to determine the kind of affect that we want to have on somebody in order to get them to do something to fill a need that we have. You know, so if, if we just step aside from the technical aspect of language for a second sure. and come into Sabi world, into my <laughs> world, um, I, I'm tending to think more and more subtextually. It's what, how we organize all of this as actors, as, as theater people, directors and actors primarily, and writers if they're really attuned to this, is what is it that we're lacking? What don't we have in our lives that creates a hole within us. Uh -huh. And from that point of view, everything that we're doing is chasing something that will help feed that and nourish that hole and sate it. So I think that chase then is like an addiction. Yeah. And we are determined to get what we want to feel better. <laughs> you're, you're using more exciting language to describe 
objective, maybe, right, than the word objective. Yes, which I, is, I, I think objective becomes, it's intellectual, it has sure. too many um, historical associations <laughs> and connotations, and what we tend to do is to think about it in terms of the inner monologue is, I want, I want, I want. Right. That's okay, but when you're in action, it's I need. Yeah. Well, and so it gets down to, sorry, to that kind of visceral yeah. level yeah. Mm-hmm. that creates mm-hmm. energy, fire, mm-hmm. excitement in performance. All the language you just used, I suspect a lot of psychologists would hear and say, you just described a craving, a craving for yeah. something, well, which is so much, if you want to talk about language, to crave something is so much richer and deeper and to the core yeah. than even I want or yeah. a goal. But, that, but that's what or, or in rehearsal you're trying, you want to get to, yeah. is that level yeah. of primal action that may, the, the primalness of it may be suppressed by cultural context. Yeah. Um, but it's still there driving you yeah. forward. Like I, that just thinking about a play like Duchess of Malfi, mm-hmm. you know, 17th century, very twisted, Jack, what we would call Jacobean tragedy. And these characters are ruled by enormous global kinds of passions and depth, but at the same time, they are constrained by their position in the world. We're Mm -hmm. dealing with royalty, we're dealing with a duchess, we're dealing with her brother, a cardinal. You know, so, so you get this kind of, in a modern context, a conflict between the inner or subtextual desire and energy and the cultural context restraints that affects the shape of the language. Okay, so I think, uh, I again, I prefer things in three because I think they're easier to remember. Um, so it's the verbal, which is usually considered to be about 7 to 8% of communication. And that is the word itself, which is finite. It's just the word on the page. Then what I would call the verbal, which is how the word is spoken. Wait, was the first thing verbal? Vo- uh, then vocal. Vocal. Then the second is vocal. Okay, verbal, vocal. Uh, so it's the verbal and the vocal. And the vocal is considered to be about... 37 or 38% of communication. So you've got the word, and then you have the way the word is spoken, and then the other 55% of communication is what I call visceral. And that, it could be nonverbal communication, it's status, it's relationships, it's everything that exists outside of the realm of the language itself. So you take all of that and you combine that and you've got the con- the confluence of text, context, and subtext. And th- add to that the nature of the relationship between you and the person that you're dealing with and how your hunger is creating a need and action that can lead to in the context of the relationship the choice of word that you speak or how you say that word which moves you into pursuing that which you need 
in the same way that an addict needs whatever the fix is in order to get to a point of balance and peace in in any given moment. So I want to ask a question about the difference between some of these more classical texts or some of, maybe this isn't all the same thing, but some of uh, the the texts um, that might have more structure to them versus some more contemporary texts where it seems that sometimes uh, things seem more authentic to a contemporary ear. The more that someone is searching for the right thing to say in the context of producing the the words, the more that the uncertainty and the inner, ooh, did I mean it this way? Um, er, all of those things, that seems like a very authentic way to reflect someone's thought process. Now. Now. Whereas it's, there's this, at least, at the very least, uh, a stereotype or an impression, and maybe this isn't true, that when you speak Shakespeare, that that character has discovered the perfect way to express exactly, that there are no mistakes in there that they're working through, right? That the playwright writing for the character has somehow achieved this thing. And so I think at times, when done badly... <laughs> Shakespeare comes off as less spontaneous and less authentic because it seems more stockpiled and pre-planned. I, I, that's just bad acting. It's <laughs> just bad acting. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 so if, uh, to counter that, language is thought in action. So you take a soliloquy. There's a structure to it. And in, in dealing with language, if I'm really dealing with acting and language, I will start with the sonnets Mm. uh, because there is a structure to the thought. Their first eight lines is a thought moving in one direction in the argument. The next four lines, the thought moves in the opposite direction. And then the final two lines, the final couplet, is a, some kind of resolution. I'm not even going to say summation, but some kind of resolution. Mm-hmm. So when you start to see the structure of the thought, then go to a soliloquy, it's the same mm-hmm. structure. And when you can follow that, what you when you viscerally understand that, what you realize is in that moment, the character is working through an issue to try and get to a resolution. The thought is not resolved. Mm. It's something that is in process. And we are hearing the inner workings of that person trying to solve a problem. Expand that into scenes are about opposite polarities in interaction trying to find a resolution the thought is always and the language is always in action that way and my theory is that when people are really on top of it when they're really engaged there are no ums and ahs and pauses passion drives the thought forward So that you don't need that. You get into this glide or drive of expression until the thought is resolved. Uh, But what occurs to me is, you know, like listen to 
comics doing stand-up. Hmm. The thought is really pretty clear. The line is pretty clear unless they add a pause for effect right. to drive something home. Mm -hmm. So it's honed like that yes. and crafted like that. Yes. And it's very crafted and then meant to appear to be spontaneous. Yes. Yes. But you see, you take that, what you just did, take that and put that, put up that on stage. No, no, put that, you can edit it out. Put it, put that on stage. And it's the person in the moment looking for the thought. Yeah. It's not a break in the action. It's a continuation mm -hmm. of it. So even when the character, when there is silence in the scene, it's not dead. It is something that is still moving forward and can be extraordinarily engaging to witness. How do you use movement in a rehearsal or in a class when you are trying to aid an actor to connect more authentically or truthfully to uh, the uh, language? I'll get an actor to really overbody, you know, to move like mm -hmm. mad, to get the language. I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest problem not problem, the biggest challenge in training actors and working with actors is to get people out of their heads and into their bodies <laughs> so that the action can be appear to be spontaneous mm -hmm. uh -huh. and that there's an element of play to it all. So anything that will help an actor personalize and connect with the thought process and then the choice of word or word groups to create an image that will then have meaning for the actor become something that can live inside them and resonate and be chosen to affect the person who's hearing it in yes. a very specific way. I love that. So I just heard a at least three or four separate things. You have the thought. Let's connect that to the character. Thought and character, thought, character, actor are one. Then you have the words, which are actually separate from the thought, the language in the sense, I don't want to say separate, like they, they have a relationship, but they are two separate things in the sense that I have, con I have a choice to make about what language I choose to use to express the thought. And then finally, you have the visceral experience of thinking and speaking. Those yes. thoughts. You know, uh, to be really bald about it, with language, you, ha you basically have two choices. You're either going to reveal something or conceal something. <laughs> and in, in that realm, you use more words or less words, mm. or you use words to conceal what you really mean, or you can be extremely direct and bold and bald about it. Um, and then the language has a different kind of attack in the moment. I'm going to hold on to your threes for the rest of my life. Text, context, <laughs> subtext, verbal, vocal, visceral. I've never heard. Thank you, Sabin. Sure. Again, when you think about Shakespeare, right? And if you're, the goal is to connect the words to meaning, uh, and then you said connect the, the, the words to meaning, but then have them vis that viscerally activated, is is I mean, is the intellectual step necessary? Do you have to go through the sort of heady or part of definitely, you know, just in the case of an actor not knowing what a particular word means, you know, do you have to sort of bring it up into your head and then back down again into the body? Okay, well, I, I, I think 
your job as an actor is to know what every word means. <laughs> so you, you start your homework is with the text and the yeah. OED, yeah. the Oxford English Dictionary, and, or the simply Shakespeare or whatever text you go, or however many texts you go to, to understand all the possible meanings and ramifications of every word because that's going to affect and influence ultimately the kinds of choices that you make about the action that you're engaged with. The point, of course, is in the moment when you're playing with somebody, you're not in your head. Right. Mm -hmm. You are just engaged. I mean, the, the, you go through what, one of the stages that uh, when you're working on a piece is what I call teleprompter acting. <laughs> you know, it's always a series of thresholds, like you move out of your room and the threshold is to sit at a table with a group of other actors mm. and to read the text and you expose yourself that way. The next big threshold is to get up away from the table and onto your feet. The next threshold is to struggle to get the words out. And that's where I that's where I think teleprompter acting because uh -huh. you're you're talking to somebody but you're seeing the words yeah. in your mind's eye as if you're reading a teleprompter the way it's laid out totally on the page until you reach the point where that you've absorbed that through repetition into your body and you can look into your partner's eyes and speak spontaneous, seemingly spontaneously. Right. Now, everybody has a different process and a different approach and a different technique in the best of all possible worlds to get back to the realm of style. Everybody lives in the same world. So they have a similar approach to how to speak the language. John Gielgud, who says style is knowing what world you're in. Mm. Um, and again, that's text as influenced by context and subtext and what the rules of the game are. Uh, just to, to hearken back just for a second to when, as you were putting that question together, <laughs> you used a lot of ums. And if, you know, it's like reading body language. It's <laughs> hearing it. If you know that those mm sounds are really about people thinking, then what we're hearing is the thought in formation in the moment. So we're st and we we hang on to what's the thought going to be, where is the thought going to go, how is it going to end, and our own instinct is to try and anticipate that. <laughs> So that when you're halfway through the sentence, we're already formulating what's <laughs> going to happen. And that, like with humor, we think we know where the punchline is going. And it's either going to, we're either going to be delighted because our expectation is fulfilled or surprised because it's not. But mentally, we're already jumping to the end of the thought, which is why we do a lot of mansplaining and overlapping and cutting in because we've already anticipated the end uh. of the thought and are ready to jump in with the next one, with yes. ours. Yes, our brains are very natural 
natural pattern completers. That's one of the things our brain is the best at doing is saying, is trying to anticipate what comes next, saying, I've seen this before I know what comes next, you know, because the the more of a jump we can get, even in a level of seconds and milliseconds on what's happening in the world around us, we have an advantage to respond to that, you know, appropriately. And so it's really hard to stop your brain from wanting to complete other people's sentences, from wanting to anticipate what's happening next. Um, And I think maybe season two, we should do an episode on humor because there are a lot of really rich psychological cognitive theories of humor. um, One of of which you just summarized really well. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of humor and and pulling in your book, Acting with Style, which you co-wrote with John Harrop. Harrop, yes. Harrop. You each chapter, uh, the first chapter is about Greek tragedy. Second one is about Shakespearean tragedy. Then you move on to comedy. You have comedy of manners and you have, what's this, a farce? You move on to realism, Chekhov. Uh, we get into Mamet, Beckett, uh, theater of physical metaphor with Grotowski. Could you... Um, this seems a little passe now, but uh, that's... That's okay, okay. that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious... If you remember, and I realize you probably didn't read your book last night, what the difference, some quick differences between playing the language of comedy versus the language of tragedy. Hmm. I, I, I'll start off by saying I'm not sure there is a difference. Mm. Um, the difference. The difference may be in technical aspects we tend to think that a drama is slower and has more weight and that comedies, as an actor, you want to be ahead of the audience so that the audience is not anticipating the joke. So you play in a brisker rhythm. The worlds themselves, you know, tragedies and dramas tend to be in dark colors and heavy fabric. And comedies tend to be, you want a lot of light on the stage. You want things to be very quick, kind of sparkly, kind of bright. Uh, I think it might even influence and affect things like the kinds of actors that you choose. Mm. You want people with more resonant voices for the drama. You want people with a slightly um, brighter pitch and timbre sometimes for comedies. you know, all of those factors come into it. Again, the word is pretty finite, but it comes down to how you say it to what the vocal is and the kind of impact that you want to have. And something like a farce, for instance, it's the context that I, I think is um, most important because you, you get into a situation where the outside, the external world creates so many obstacles that happen so fast (laughs) that we recognize a human being who is overwhelmed by (laughs) and trying to keep all the plates spinning. In my mind, in, in working on that, you go for the human experience of that kind of actor's nightmare, being in the middle of a world you know nothing about and dealing with it and then work the technical aspects of the doors opening and closing to create the kind of context that bumps up 
that actor, that character in that moment and keeps it moving forward. Yes. As opposed to going to this external idea that farce is all kind of mannered and posed and it's done in a specific kind of way. Well, that's what Peter Brook would call dead theater. Mm-hmm, sure. You know, that has no inner mm-hmm. life. But if you go for the human experience, mm-hmm. maybe you find the moment where there's breath in the course of it, where somebody kind of falls apart and then has to pick themselves up again and keep on moving. Yeah. Something that we can relate to rather than being completely mm. on the outside observing. Right. Oh, that's beautiful. It is really beautiful. And if, I mean, the more that when you talked about your initial three, um, I was trying to translate those into psychological sort of terms, which might not be appropriate, but the psychologists would think a lot about explicit um, processes or messages, implicit processes or messages in subtext, and then um, situational or environmental mm-hmm. factors. And the more the environment drives something, the less individual control the people in the situation have. And so if you think about it, a very posed performance in a farce, that person has a lot of control over what's going on, whereas the entire humor is driven by the fact that the people are not in control of anything. They have to be responsive. Yeah. And it's their in-the-moment responses to things well, there, that are so... There's a scene, for instance, in Tartuffe, Moliere with two young lovers who are very fashionable and they're living in a highly stratified culture and society. So the behavior has to conform to the norms of that time and place. Their inner world is in complete turmoil. So you get that disparity and how they have to express themselves in terms of being rigidly polite, Mm. but at the same time dying inside, (laughs) you know, wanting to scream. You find the right, you find a way to get that inner and outer imbalance. It can be marvelously funny without being just a series of poses. Or a series of rants that have nothing to do with the social constraints of the time. So it's a balancing Mm. act that way. I have one more question. You've brought some Shakespeare. Can we choose one to read? Yes, we can. (laughs) Let's look at Act 2 of um, the Scottish play. So this is at the point in the story where the Lord has been coerced by his wife or encouraged by his wife to go ahead and, and murder the king, regicide. And they have agreed upon the time. They have, they, they've come up with a plan. And so we'll just read a little bit of it. He has gone off into the king's chamber. And of course... It's regicide, so it's not just the king, but symbolically the father of the country, the head of the state, the person who is directly under God in the great chain of being. You know, it has enormous consequences. Mm. And the debate that he has been engaging in the the problem that he has that he's been trying to solve is should i do it should i not do it so that soliloquy is all about if it were done when it were done then it were well it were done quickly let's just get over mm-hmm. it and his wife has come in and said why are you here mm. 
everybody's asleep. Let's, Let's do get, it. Get, get on with it. Let's, get on with move, yeah, move, move. Right. And, you know, the, the cock is going to crow pretty soon yeah. and it's going to be daylight and <laughs> we're all going to be fatutzed. So um, <laughs> she's, he's gone off to do it. She has, she has been waiting for him. She has been waiting for him uh, while he's off doing it. And we've heard some sounds off stage. And let me see where... This is a first for the podcast. We have two people sharing a, a script on opposite sides of the desk. And trying to figure out where the And trying the to figure out where goes. to start and how to speak into the uh, microphone. Okay, so it's... <laughs> All right, here we go. Great. So he comes in, his hands are bloody, and he says, I have done the deed. Didst thou not hear a noise? I heard the owls scream and the crickets cry. Did not you speak? When? Now. As I descended? I. Hark. Who lies in the second chamber? Donald Bain. Tis a sorry sight. A foolish thought to say a sorry sight. Okay, so that's all we have to do at the moment. But... In this, it's lit. So if you know that iambic pentameter is a series of 10 beats to the line, so it's organized so that two beats create what we call a foot, and there are five feet to the line. In, the, in what we just read, there's a series of single feet that strung together create one line. Mm. So there is no pause in it. So when he says, did you not speak? When? Now. Uh, now. As I descended? I. Oh. Hold on. I say, did not you speak? When? Now. As I descended? I. Then there are six beats without any language. So there's the pause uh. built in. And then he says, hark, who lies in the second chamber? Donald Bain. So there's no pause. They, her Donald Bain completes the line. So he gives you, he's telling you yeah. how to say the lines, why you break it up that way, why you, why you have the pause there is your job as the actor to fill it out. Yeah. So you're honoring the text, but the text is telling you what to do. And harking back to part three of our language of this episode, yeah. when it was just me and Kateri talking, then when the actor adheres to that tempo or rhythm, where you pause, where you can't, where you have to come in, that will give, that will feed back into the actor and they will better understand the circumstances yes. that that character is living inside right. of. Well, you know, and that from an observer's point of view, even though you're on opposite sides of the desk right now, that was an extremely intimate experience. Yeah. And especially the part contained before and after the pause, the first part was very focused on the two of you. And the hark was like, zoom, what's outside? What's, what is, you know, it was, it was really very, very clear. Then there was no staging, no rehearsal, clearly. I'm sure both of you have read these lines before. <laughs> But you know what I mean? Uh, it was it was all communicated extremely well, and there was almost a shared breath between the two of you yeah. in order to carry out the correct reading. So to go back to what we are talking about earlier, when you know the rules about how the text was written 
And it's like, okay, so it's like music. You know, there are notes on the page. You learn how to read the notes, and then you learn how to translate the connection between the eye and the connection with your fingers so that there's an immediate connection. Yeah. And you drill it and drill it and drill it until you don't think about that anymore. And then you start to play, verb, play note to note. And as you put the notes together, the music lies somewhere in the space between one note and the next note. Mm. That's exactly what you do in training and in rehearsal as well. As you work the text note to note, you get it into your body, and then you start to find where the music is, which is between the word, between yourself and the other person. It's really beautiful. I know. We have just stop. But I love it because what you just said actually wraps up not just language, which we invited you here to talk about, but physicality and objective and all of these other things that we've talked about. The so this space. is a really, yeah, this is a really beautiful way to end out the series of discussions we've been having. Thank you for coming and thank you for being our final guest also oh, for well, that thank reason. Thank you for inviting me. I'm honored. <laughs> all right. Bye. Bye. And that's our episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please spread the word. As always, we have resources up on our website, www.theactorsmind.com. If you are like, what was the book? What was the article? That's where you can go and get a reference. We also uh, do a, just a little bit of social media-ing. So if you want to follow us, we're at Actors Mind Pod on Facebook and Twitter and the Instagram. Bye. Bye. <laughs>